Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My brand new novel, Careering, is available in hardback. It's published by Sphere in the UK. Careering is also available in North America, published by Doubleday Canada. You can listen to the full version on Audible or the abridged adaptation on BBC Sounds. If you're in the UK and you'd like a signed copy of any of my books, including Insatiable, now out in paperback, and the non-fiction books How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood, you can order from my lovely local, The Margate Bookshop. They deliver across the UK. It was great to meet some listeners at Henley Litfest a couple of weeks ago. I had such a great time interviewing Bonnie Garmus and Nina Stibby and Sally Hughes. I've got some more events coming up over the next few weeks with fabulous authors. I shall be revealing all in the next week or two. Today's guest is Amanda Owen, who many of you will know as the Yorkshire Shepherdess. I love this conversation because it took me by surprise. Amanda and I have a very different relationship with books and reading, but we found so much common ground. She's a collector who remembers building her first bookcase. She keeps a monk's pocket prayer book and she names and shames the book borrowers who have been hanging on to some of her favourites. If you recognise these late lenders, consider this an amnesty. Let's get these books back to Amanda. And listen out for an unexpected reference to a significant Judy Bloom book. Enjoy. I'd love to start by asking you about food writing and I love the way you write about food and I think that's such an important part of life and what brings us pleasure. Are there any food writers or recipe books that you have turned to again and again? Or Yes, absolutely. I think I think everybody tends to accumulate um, accumulate cookbooks throughout their life and the ones that they love are the ones that pretty much the pages are all stuck together and they're, 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 they're sort of all battered because they've all, been, they've all been used and loved and balanced on the kitchen table and had the ingredients spilled on. So I'm going to say Mary Berry. <laughs> oh, great choice. Can't go wrong with Mary Berry. I mean, Mary Berry, for a start, you can usually find whatever ingredients she, is, she has on her, her ingredients list. You will have them. You will. There won't be anything weird there. She's just she's just perfection for me. Plus, she also does normal size portions. 
You know, when you make a cake and it says, perfect to feed six people or eight people, and you look and go, what? Really? There's just enough for me there. <laughs> She's realistic. Everything also can be supersized. So Mary Berry. I have, of course, got some Nigella recipes. They're just great, but I don't know whether it's actually the recipe I'm there for or just the pictures of her looking seductively at cakes and buns and things. Um, I've, <laughs> I, what else? I've got a few bread, Paul Hollywood, lots and lots, and, of course, a few tried and tested old ones as well. Um, Clarissa Dixon Wright, the two fat ladies, they mm -hmm. were brilliant on their meat recipes. They, 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 you know, they were pretty hardcore. They told it like it was. Their recipes were. I think with all of those food writers that you've mentioned, what I love about every single one is I can always hear their voice. And Mary Berry has such warmth and she's so reassuring. And you can almost hear her holding your hand. You know, when I'm scared about what I'm doing with the mixer, she's right there. But then Nigella, you know, every line is a poem and it's so evocative. <laughs> and Mary makes me so grateful that I've, like, I've got self-raising flour and I've got castle sugar and I've got eggs and Nigella makes you want to run out and find the perfect tiny Italian deli. Nigella's the indulgence. She's the dinner party, isn't she? Mary Berry is the, there's somebody coming, I've got to knock something together quick and it has to work. I trust her. Absolutely, 100%. Have you read any uh, novels or do you remember any stories or sort of works of fiction where food was described? Oh, do you know what? That is, I'm going to have to be honest here. I am so terrible when it comes to actually reading anything, any works of fiction. For, for some reason, that is completely, totally and utterly lost on me. Everything that I've ever read has been more of a, of a, a factual, of a more factual kind of a nature. Oh, that's really interesting. Do you think it's because you've got a much more sort of a, a practical, pragmatic kind of scientific brain that you want to learn? That was such a polite way of saying because you're boring. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm really evangelical about reading and I think lots of people find it really hard to make time for fiction because it's difficult to justify, I think especially now. And I think, you know, the work you do and everything you stand for, it's so practical and productive and you're doing something useful. And I can see the idea of, you know, you've got a busy life and a big family and so much to do and the idea of like just going off and sort of sitting with a novel in the bath is you know that feels like a a wicked indulgence it does very frivolous and it's just i believe me i have made attempts i think you know the, you know when there's certain crazes we, we go through certain book crazes everybody's reading everybody's reading this i remember dan brown there was the dan brown mania everybody was reading his stuff and i just i tried i really tried I tried, I tried to read that, I tried to read um, some Zadie Smith, and this is not, for one minute, me sort of saying anything about these books. I'm just saying it's, I just can't, I can't stick with it. It was The Kite Runner as well. You know, all those books, I've got them still there on my shelf, should I ever sort of want to go back to them. Maybe it's because of my attention span. I need to be able to dip into something and then be able to come out of it and go back to it. Anything that I have to think too much about and try and remember the characters and remember the plot line, I think that's probably too big a ass. Oh, that's interesting. And I think that millions of people can relate to that right now, especially after the last few years we've had. I think the way we consume information is so intense and in such a short burst. But it's interesting that you mentioned Zadie Smith. Um, 
I love her work very much, but I really, really love her essays. And she writes these really brilliant essays that are, they're really smart, but her gift is that she makes the reader feel as smart as she is, which is a hell of a thing. There is, I am not a millionth as clever as Sadie Smith, but she makes me feel as though I might be. And she's really engaging. I was a bit nervous. I think the first book of essays I read was called Changing My Mind. And someone recommended it and I thought, oh, I think this is going to make me feel really thick. And actually she takes some really thoughtful ideas and puts them together in such a a compelling and original way. And it does feel like a friend talking to you. And they're so you can read a few pages and digest them and they'll stay with you all day but you don't feel as though there are things to keep track of because there are so many different things so I wonder whether the essay is the the way forward that is maybe maybe a good recommendation me and myself I always I always said I was a reader and listening to so many people and how passionate they are about books and certain genres of books almost almost made me feel quite I suppose intimidated that that maybe I didn't I wasn't reading enough I wasn't reading I wasn't reading a wide range I knew what I liked and it was more the factual kind of element I mean I could I mean obviously I'm gonna I'm gonna hark back here to to James Herriot Alf White with his all creatures great and small because for me that was sort of the beginning the beginning of a journey to actually sort of living as close to that as ever I could. It's fired that spark in me that I wanted to be a shepherd, right? So that's where it all began. So that I lay that firmly at the door of reading and books, but it also in a way, I suppose, maybe slightly narrowed my mind because then I became fixated with the idea that I had to find out anything and everything to do with this very sort of, I suppose, niche part of the countryside. I needed to know about sheep. I needed to know about sort of the moorlands of Yorkshire. I needed to know a little bit about the Lake District. It was all that, and that was it. So from then on, that was where my focus lied. And I kind of never have deviated from that. I'm still, even to this day, always searching out for more information. There was a big auction. Um, Oh my goodness, it might be today. There's a big auction of um, agricultural books going up at at Laban Auction Mart. And already I've looked through them and seen some of the books and some of the ones that I might buy. And they're not ones that I'm going to sit in the bath and read. They're not ones that that I'm going to sort of really immerse myself and take word for word. But the ones that hopefully maybe, um, if I put a bid in, I might be able to, to sort of take out a little piece of sort of you know keep exciting so I'd love to hear what books have caught your eye I mean I can't imagine realistically our listeners are going to be like oh yeah me too that's on my pile but I'd love to hear what these what these books are exactly I mean seriously there's there's all kinds of books it's it's pretty much it's like old-fashioned um farming almanacs so there's everything from um particularly to do with the the moorlands of Yorkshire where I live how animals graze it's about bogland it's about heathland it's about i think back in the day these books that i'm talking about they very much encompassed a lot of things so there was quite a lot of um herbs and medicines and ways to treat animals natural remedies and i feel like in a way we're doing full circle because we're almost going back to a stage where we're looking to homeopathy and more natural ways to tend our livestock and graze them. So maybe actually 
these sort of epic tomes from a couple of hundred years ago might actually become in some way um, more important. That's so exciting. I think you're right. And I love the idea of finding remedies and ways to heal from the landscape. Have you come across any amazing natural remedies or healing herbs in your research? Yeah, I find all sorts. I mean, everything from stinging nettles. I I guess the thing is, when it comes to the books that I enjoy, bringing all kinds of elements. There's a scientific element as to, you know, experiments that have been done, but also there's the mythology. There's everything Mm. to do, I suppose, with hearsay, folklore. For me, that is what I want to read about. And that's why I hardly dare tell you about what book I've probably got at the side of my bed, because to most people, it's just, it's almost work. Where Where do you separate work and leisure? I don't think I I really do. It's all kind of smooshed into one. Does that feel good? Is that because you're living your passion? I mean, I know it's it's complicated, isn't it? Because I think they say, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. But I think those of us who do what we love know it's... Occasionally, it it still feels like work all the same. (laughs) Yeah, it does. I always think that for me personally, when it came to books, of course I enjoyed them. One of the first big gifts that I remember getting was actually um, a bookcase. I got a bookcase because my parents um, realised, went to went to a new shop that I'd opened, I think it was called, was it MFI? It was something like that. And basically they bought me sort of a flat pack bookcase and I put it together and I was so proud of this bookcase and I could start putting my collections, which were books about animals, books about, about farming, everything. And I just loved the gilt binding. I loved everything about those books, the way they felt, the way they smelled, everything. Yeah. It, they just they just took me to another place. Can you remember roughly how old you were, and did you have a book collection? Oh, that I, that literally, I would have been about in. probably about eight, eight, nine years old when I started off with this infatuation with books, because I lived in Huddersfield, and that was absolutely a, a fantastic place to be able to get hold of books because secondhand books there was just lots and lots of shops, and I could go down to um, the Salvation Army Hall. And you could go and buy, for a pound, a box of random books. And sometimes you were a winner, sometimes you were a loser. It was almost like sort of a, a bit of a, a, a lottery whereby, mm. you know, some weeks I'd come away and say, wow, look at what I've got. How amazing is this? This is great. And another week it'd be like, oh, goodness me, we've got some, you know, we've got some real stinkers in here. <laughs> but I still have some of those books that, that I picked up all those years ago because there were a few gems in there. I just... I just like to see what I could find. It was like a it it was like a treasure hunt. So what are these all are they agricultural books? Yep. Can you tell me the the titles and the authors? Oh my goodness, I've got Modern Farriery, which which uh, which is a joke in itself because I think it was about 1890 that one. <laughs> and and actually they're quite they're rather rarities because a lot of these books they were chopped up because they have beautiful plates. Mm. They have beautiful plates and beautiful sort of pen and ink drawings. And people would chop them up in order that they could make a make a frame of print, you see, to go on the wall. So to be able to get those books and find them that they hadn't been sort of savagely cut up. I like books that have been annotated. I like books that people have scribbled in. I like books that have had a life. I like to find things between the pages. Mm. I like Just... to read read what people were underlining and wonder what they were thinking. All that kind of stuff. I'd love to go back to uh, James Harriet. And mm. when did you 
discover him? Like, how old were you? Where were you? Who gave you that book? Did you pick it up from somewhere? Grandfather, James Harriet Mania was the thing. And I can't remember at the time whether it was James Harriet Mania because of the books or whether the TV series had already aired. I'm not quite sure. It all kind of, in my mind, it all came as one. But I remember being handed a copy of If Only They Could Talk. And it was my granddad. Because, I mean, he absolutely, he'd been reading them and he'd been telling me, you know that thing where where you feel like you're reading a book because someone's telling you what they've been reading about and what made them laugh? And you think, mm. do you know what? I might as well just read it. So so I get these books and I just, I just love the stories. In a way, it was a bit of a crossover. It's as near as I was ever going to get to fiction because it absolutely epitomised everything that I enjoyed. It was the countryside, it was the animals, it was the characters. I felt like I was there. I could hear the people talking, the conversation. It was dialect, so it wasn't. It hadn't been smartened up, it hadn't been neatened up. It was as people spoke. And I, I, I was like, this is great. All the characters. I loved it. Oh, that's such a thrilling feeling, isn't it? When you love something and you're like, there's more, there's so much. There's more coming. You never pick up a book and think, this is going to change my life. I'm sort of the last person you would ever find with a self-help book, with a lifestyle book. But if I think about those books and what that led to, Mm. then in a roundabout way, I'd say it's complete serendipity that I am where I am because it was those books that set me off on a path. So from the James Herriot series... There was another book that came out, and it said, and it, it was James Herriot's Yorkshire, and it had literally a book of photographs, a book of photographs, and it had on the front page, on on a title, on a cover, it had him standing, looking out across the Yorkshire scenery. It's a really common book; you find it in every single charity shop ever. And I got that book, and it was it didn't cost much, and it wasn't you know it wasn't something you were ever going. It was just like it was like his special places. So I'm going through this book and and I'm looking at these places that he finds special to him. And then years later, I'm talking 25 years later, I get this book and I look at it again. And you know how books, when they get old, they go through a stage where they become vintage, antiquarian, and that's kind of good. They go through a bit of a naff stage, don't they? Where the ink ink looks a bit funny. And I looked in this book and I'm like, that's actually our town. That's... That's the town on the farm where I now live. And I read this little chapter and he says, this is one of my favourite places. This is one of the places where I came for a picnic in about 1956 and I sat here on the shores of the town and the black-headed gulls were nesting and there was, there was birds and there was bird eggs and there's this, this inky black, this, this sort of... This, this expanse of still water and it's got an eerie feel to it but when I look behind me there's there's the whole of the dale sort of stretching out in front of me he's describing his whole picnic and I'm like but that's where I go that's there that's where I live and I'm like this is amazing then in a roundabout turnaround I get the opportunity to meet Alf White, the real James Harriet's daughter. And we go to the town. And I think, I cannot believe this. All them years later, I am standing there with Rosie Harriet, the real person out of the book, James Harriet's daughter, 
and we're standing there on our farm with that connection. And that for me is everything. That's magical and that your grandfather set you on that amazing path just by being really passionate and really enthusiastic and saying, I love this and I want you to love it too. And that is what sort of set it all off. So I feel like that in itself, it's very poignant, right? Really Really poignant. poignant. Really poignant because I'm the last person in the world who should ever have written a book. I got an E in English at GCSE level. I was a person who stared out the window. I was a person who was somewhere else. I just kept my head down. I wasn't good, I wasn't bad, I was just in the middle. And the only thing that I really loved and enjoyed was reading and books. And I've come full circle now because I'm sitting here now with my book and it's published by Pam Macmillan, the same as James Harriet. When I came here, and sat and spoke to them about writing books, they said to me, you do know that we actually published the James Harriet books? And I was like, again, it was sort of another piece of the jigsaw. Mm. I don't think I'm him, I'm not him. He inspired me. He threw me, in a way, the idea. He gave me the idea, he gave me the sort of, he gave me the drive to do that through his books. So now I go to literature festivals and yes, I still have imposter syndrome. Yes, I still feel like I don't belong, but I will sit there and I'm determined that at no point am I gonna try and make myself anything that I am. I will say, look, the book that inspired me is not anything of, it's not Russian literature, it's not Tolstoy, it's nothing like that. It's James Harriet. I mean, I think that's the most extraordinary legacy and connection. And I love that. I did not know that James Harris is published by Pam McMillan. And I love that. I love that link. And I think that's so, so important for people to hear because I think that, because, because I think the way that we're all taught is so narrow. And it's not really, I don't think it's necessarily an indication of intelligence. It's about you figure out how to play the game early on or not. And if you're alienated and if you're not encouraged and you're not seen, you just get left behind. And I think of all of those children, as you say, who are, if you're neither bad nor good, then you don't get, no one sees you. And so to be able to find those books, and I really hope there are people listening to this who hear that and hear themselves and they feel the sense of possibility. And you know what you said about, you're not James Harriet, you know, you're you, you're Amanda. And people, I think, are already reading your many books and they're thinking about their future and their possibilities and what they might become. I think that really is a magical thing. I think that's why I care so much about books. Yeah, well, exactly. It's that that point. It's how it gets you. Nobody knows what that book is. Nobody knows where it's going to come from. From the James Mm. Herriots, I went across to another book. It was a photographic book. And of course, the title of that one was Hill Shepherd. So that was a book by John and Eliza Forder. Um, and it was it was a coffee table style book. So again, it's full of, of, uh, of photographs of hill shepherds. And there wasn't much in the way of a narrative at all. It was just literally the pictures spoke. So I saw these pictures, I looked at it. That was kind of the joining the dots of moment. It was like, hang on a minute. I, I was very aware that the Harriet books were a sort of about times past. But that book sort of, in a way, brought it right up to the here and now and said to me, well, actually, it's still very relevant. It's still going on. The people, the characters, all that is still happening. It is something 
that I can go and chase. This is not in the past tense. This is doable. And um, at, at what point in your life was this? Sort of roughly how old were you? I was four, well, 15, 14, 15, because it was, of course, careers time. It was careers time, and it's that time when the kid who's just stared out the window supposedly has to make a, sort of some sort of statement. Instead of dodging the question and sort of keeping your head down, you get hauled into a room somewhere. Someone says, right, OK, so what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And for some kids, they knew. For other kids, they totally didn't know. And I was that. So I'm sitting there thinking, goodness me, what am I going to say here? Who am I? What do I enjoy? And the only thing that I could think about was the Harriet book. So I said, oh, God, oh, well, I want to be a vet. And my careers advisor was like, well, you've got to be joking. There's not an ounce of sort of academic excellence in you. You, you, you just sort of a bit of a coaster. You can't do that. You need to think again. So he said, you know, go away, think again and come back to me with another idea. So I was like, OK, I get that. I can't be a vet. I took on board what he said, but I didn't entirely give up. So I went back to the bookshelves. I went to the library at Huddersfield Central Library. And I'm looking down all the books there. And as usual, there's Black's Veterinary Dictionary, you know, there's stuff on farming and all manners of things. And then then there's this new book. And it's just appeared because it was, it was like brand new, just out. And it's this photographic book. And I'm like, oh, get that, take it home. Not much to read in it, to be fair. It was pictures. But it was like... Wow, this is actually, this is actually real. Maybe I can do all the things that, take all the elements out of the Harriet books that I wanted to, to live and wanted to be. Um, and it can happen. I need to go back to my career's advice and tell them I want to be a shepherd. Just like in that book, Hill Shepherd. So you can imagine how that went down. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not in a rural school. This is, a, this is, you know, this is a very urban school. This is, you know, a school that, that you know, it, it's, um, it has its own issues. People don't usually come along and say they want to be a shepherd. Mm. So they put me down as a general farm worker. I got that book as well, you see. I actually bought that book away down the line because it was only when I started writing and was given the opportunity to write that actually... I sat and thought about it. I've never had time before then. You know, I hadn't spent ages sort of wringing my hands and wondering where the sort of divine intervention came and how I ended up writing books. But I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, books, hmm, right, okay, where did it all start? Harriet. And all of a sudden, I'm like joining the dots. I'm like, it was Harriet. It was the book Hill Shepherd. So I ordered the book Hill Shepherd. It came through the post. I think it cost me about £4. And again, I open up the pages. We've got that fusty book feel again, and things are looking a little dated. But everything is just as relevant now as it ever was then. I recognise the places. I even recognise some of the people in it. I know it. I look at that book. It's the same book. Nothing has changed, but I interpret it entirely differently. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back with Amanda soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Sea State by Tabitha Lasley, a journalistic memoir in which the author spends time with the men who work offshore, hoping to discover what they are really like when women aren't around. This book is startling and extraordinary, sexy, raw and atmospheric. Tabitha is a truly singular writer. The prose is beautiful and addictive. Sea State is published by Fourth Estate and out now. Now back to Amanda. I'd love to ask you about books that you have shared with your children. I think it must be an incredible thing for children to have a mother who wasn't academically encouraged and was reading these really unusual books because, you know, teenagers don't aren't normally reading about being a shepherd. Our bookshelves are heaving. They're a total mess. It's such a shame that I'm here and I couldn't show you. I mean, I would be slightly embarrassed probably, but there are books everywhere. Oh, there's nothing I love more than a messy bookshelf. Oh, I'm hoping me... it's still the the MD, MDF, MDI, FDI, FBI. I've still got the MDF, but we've expanded. We've got a whole wall. It goes round the wall and then we've run out of room. So it's kind of like there's a few stacked up in the corner. Totally, you know, like, everywhere. Now, again, with having nine children and with my now heightened awareness of books and what they can do, I have been totally and utterly hands-off when it comes to the selection of books. I have never tried to channel them. I've tried to see, because I know myself, Reuben is not at all academic. He's 18 years old. And, you know, books? Nah, don't think I'll bother. He's never going to immerse himself in a book. But you get in books about things he's fascinated about, that's entirely different. So anything mechanical anything about tractors but again do you know what he's on manuals he's not on sort of like dreamy kind of stories about tractors and i'm like that's great that is great because that is what makes him want to further his knowledge he's found his thing raven she's a bit different she's academic she's at university now she reads quite a lot she reads all kinds of things i think did she really was it gone girl gone girl was she reading that i'm sure i saw her with that one she read for pleasure. She read quite a lot of stories about um, doctors and medicine. I think there was a surgeon's story. There was another about a pathologist. So she was maybe picking picking more fictionalised type of books. But again... Does she study medicine? Yeah, well, she's doing biomedicine, yes. Yeah. She's just got a oh, first. Wow. She's just got a first. So she's doing, she's <gasps> doing, a, she's doing a master's now. So I'm dead proud of her. But she's she's bookish. She does fiction. She will go to Waterstones because she's told me before she got really annoyed because 
she lost one of her her books amongst my absolute sort of travesty of a bookshelf. <laughs> Violet, she kind of likes reading a lot of Jacqueline Wilson's. She likes those. That's her thing. And I think she read a few David Walliams as well. You know, again, just... And I think actually Sydney's into those Diary of Wimpy Kids, now you mention it. Oh, I love those. They're so funny. Well, I mean, she, he reads them. I don't read aloud to them. When they were little, I would read them the usual. The Hungry Caterpillar... Um, there was also actually a, a Harriet version, of course there was, called Moses the Kitten. Oh, I didn't know that. That's amazing. And that was beautiful. And the thing that they loved about that book, it was the fact that whoever illustrated it did the most perfect, perfect illustrations ever. Everything was absolutely right. You could tell that the person who who illustrated it had been sitting in that building. They hadn't just plucked it out of anything. Everything was just right. Clemmy absolutely loves poetry. She she has that kind of mind. I was reading her some Banjo Patterson because um, she loves the man from Snowy River. That's what she absolutely enjoys. She can picture that. She has seen a scene from the film and if I, I sort of read her that poem, it just flows. We were just talking to Mallory Blackman about poetry and she's just written an amazing memoir and she writes some verse, but she talks about talking to children in schools about poetry and how that's such a huge thing. If, if you're a, you know, maybe a nervous reader or a bored reader or a reluctant reader, reading like a novel, that feels like quite a dense thing. But there's so much space on a page in poetry for your imagination to, to connect with. It's such a diverse thing. It can encompass so many things. And I suppose what I'm trying to say is, with children, you need to hook them. You can't force it. All you can do is sort of fill your house with books and encourage them not to follow a fashion. It can be such a thing. This book's in fashion. Everyone's reading this book. That's okay. That's good. Book clubs, all the rest of it. Of course it is. It's great to, to hear what someone else has got to say. But you, how do you know? Until you sort of pluck it off a shelf and pick it up. How do you know what that thing is? Is it about the story? Is it, about the, is it about the subject matter? Is it about how it makes you feel? Are you trying to gain more knowledge? What are you wanting to get from it? Is it rest and relaxation? Is it excitement and exhilaration? Because I've got nine children and they've all got different ways about them, mm. I know that Violet likes reading her, her Jacqueline Wilson's because it's the rebel in her. Yeah. Yeah, because that's her. I, could, I, I know now because I've seen her from being a baby develop into who she is now. I know she's a rebel. I know, I know what she's going to be. It's always going to be Jacqueline Wilson, always. But you kind of have to get to that place, don't you? I was thinking when you're talking about having this fabulous sort of, you know, messy bookcase piled up with all kinds of things. And that's so powerful. Rather than, as you say, say you know, be prescriptive and say, you must read this. This is fashionable. This is exciting. If you walk past a big, big bookcase 10 times, at one point, you will just have an instinctive, you'll grab something and you'll don't, you won't know why and you won't be able to explain it, but there'll just be something about the spine or the cover and it'll be like an itch you've got to scratch. And I think just being around the books, not pushing anyone to them, but having them there, I think that's huge. It's massive. I feel also like it shouldn't be a class thing either. Mm. Everyone should have access to books my books aren't pretty. <laughs> my, you know, I, I mean, the ones that I put on the top shelf, I kind of reckon are the ones that I really would not like to see a cup of coffee sat on. But, you know, there you go. Oh, so what are your most good-looking books? <laughs> I have some really good-looking books, actually. 
I went through a stage where I was really interested in reading about Romani culture. So I've got quite a lot of um, a lot of books that I picked up at Hay and Why, which is a fabulous place to pick up secondhand books. I also have quite a few books on um, side saddles. So one of the most beautiful books that I enjoy is has the very evocative title of To Whom the Goddess. Mm. Wow. Now, To Whom the Goddess, if that doesn't say female empowerment, if that doesn't make you feel... I mean, I always think when I say that, can people actually guess what that's about? Side saddle, the art of riding side saddle. It's been elegant, it's been strong. It's like looking like looking like a princess, looking like a queen, but also having the ability to be able to out-jump, out-run, out-gallop and do everything, but also whilst looking flipping demure whilst doing it. Right? Okay. It's like the line about Ginger Rogers doing everything um, Fred Astaire could do backwards in high heels. Exactly. Exactly. That is exactly the thing. So I've got my Romany books. I've got my side saddle books. I've got books. I think the oldest book I've got up there is is actually written in Latin. So I don't actually really know what it's called, but it's got such beautiful bindings. I think that's about from 1580. So that's a really old wow. one. So, so anything like that. I've got a book that that's up there as well. It's a tiny book that used to apparently <laughs> go in a monk's pocket. It's really small, really small. And it's got, um, it's all written in Latin. It's all about basically, it's not, it's not a reading book. It's just a book that you want to have in your hand. It's got gorgeous little line drawings of the Grim Reaper. <laughs> <laughs> and goodness knows what, but it's one of those books that you don't have it because of what it says. You have it because it's your imagination. You have that in your hand. You think, where, where has that been? Who, why, what was once this some at some point was this the most precious thing to somebody? And what an image that it's a small book and it is purposefully pockets like this sort of ancient thing from hundreds of years ago that someone kept close to them. That you know this book, it's not just been on someone's shelf; it's been by someone's skin. That's magical. But that's the thing about. But I have one book that's got a, a tire mark right across it, and the reason I've got, <laughs> I know the reason I've got that. It will never, I will never forget. And, and the sad thing is, of course, I, I mean, I've told the children about this, but I have this absolute fear that, you know, in 50 years time, when I keel over, someone will skip it because it doesn't mean anything. I think it's called something like sheep keeping. Basically, I had it with me when I set off in my little car to go shepherding on my first shepherding job. And I was so terrified that I was letting myself into the unknown because basically I gleaned every single piece of information about being a shepherd out of books so that I supposedly had a lot of knowledge, but actually probably hadn't practically put it into use. So I set off for my first job down in Wiltshire with a little car that was filled to the gunnels with wellies, a ghetto blaster, quite a lot of jumpers and warm clothes, a pair of wellies, and also every single book that I had. Amazing. Just to get the full visual, what kind of car were you driving? It was a green Mini Metro. Nice. It was automatic. It cost me £995. I'd saved up for it. So I'd headed off, I've got this car, it's full of all this stuff and it's full of my library because then I can work through the day and on a night I can go to my room in the farmhouse and read through my book to gain more knowledge all the time. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I crashed and I ended up upside down on a wall and all my belongings, my ghetto blaster was smashed, all my CDs were everywhere, my jumper, my clothes, the lot, the humiliation, I was hanging upside down 
in the car. I was fine, but because I had my seatbelt on, but I was upside down in the car. And of course, the police had to come. I was absolutely fine, but they had to get my car out of the ditch where it had gone. And I gathered up all my belongings. The car went to the dump. I gathered up all my stuff, shoved it all into a suitcase and got all my books back. And that book had somehow managed to sort of fly out the window, go into the field, and the car had kind of run over it. And it had a wheel mark right across it. So there you go. <laughs> Annotated that with your first ever experience of yeah. I mean, really, really, I should write something on it to say what that is, but I know and that'll do, I guess. It's, it's one of those books. It's very much a sort of um, on-the-shelf kind of thing that you will... A reference book, should we say, as things that can go wrong with sheep. So you always know that things are desperate if you pick a shed book like that off the shelf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that sort of... Um, you know, like an iching for yeah. books. Books and sheep. You mentioned almanacs, and I'd love to talk a bit more about, because obviously the seasons, that's yeah. such an important part of, of your book and your writing. And, you know, that they're such a force. And I think it's so powerful to be reminded that we have to respect seasons and respect nature and that there is a time for for all things. I think that's something that we struggle to except in life now but I think we're all slowly coming back to it and responding to that a bit more yes well I mean you know the word almanac it sends shudders down you doesn't it it says I don't know it says fusty it says it says a bit sort of pastimes bygone but then to be honest I hear it and I think oh this is kind of ancient and mysterious and this is how hundreds and thousands of years ago this is how our ancestors understood the world and how they planned fascinating it's kind of like a social history but there's so much to be gleaned out of that there's so much knowledge that pretty much that was the only way it was ever going to be recorded it was hearsay it was a spoken word and that all sort of comes into play again when you look at the th- the way that I enjoy writing and why I enjoyed the Harriets, because it is that colloquialism, it's that sort of familiarity, it's that way that you close your eyes, you can hear the voice. You know, I was really fortunate that I got actually to meet a lady called Hannah Hawkswell. You might know her, you might have never heard of her, but she was, I suppose, one of the first ladies um, to do a reality television back way back, I think it would have been the late seventies. She was discovered living on a remote hill farm, all on her own. She was no 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 electricity, no services whatsoever. She drank water out of the river. She had a cow. I think she survived on something ridiculous, like about sixty pounds a year. Literally, she had been left behind. She had been forgotten. She was just eking out a living on sort of a meagre amount of money and of course one day a film producer discovered her and they made a program about her it was called too long a winter and it was sensational at the time it went global nobody could believe that this lady was still alive and almost living in a different time anyway i was fortunate enough that i got to meet her she was getting on in years she would have been in the late 80s and it would have been I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. So she was coming to the end of her life. And books were written about her, a biography all about her. She got to travel the world. But for me, speaking to her, it was that it was that idea again that she had so much knowledge. She had so much stories, folklore, but she had a different way of speaking. Everything was measured. 
Everything was carefully thought out. She was so eloquent. You could close your eyes. It was like listening to, it was like listening to music. I feel like when you talk about almanacs, it's that voice coming back through. You're not gonna believe this, but um, recently I was um, in a secondhand bookshop and I think that I saw one of Hannah Hawkeswell's books and I was really intrigued by it. And I think Tori, your publicist, emailed us at that moment. So that's what a spooky... We didn't actually buy Hannah's book. I might ring up the bookshop and see if they still have it. They were closing in two minutes and we thought, oh, we'll come back tomorrow and forgot to. But now I'm really, really intrigued by that connection. How spooky. It's those threads, those strands. It's those, I mean, honestly, talking to me must be a total nightmare because I go, I'm here, there and everywhere. But the thing is... There are so many strands and threads that connect people and things and books and stories. When Hannah died and my friend was clearing out a house and um, she sent me a message. She said, I'm clearing out Hannah's house and there's some things that you can have if you want. But I said, oh, okay. Because she was a bit of a hoarder. And one of the things that she had found was when you write a book, you get a certain number of books for yourself to give to your friends and family and people, you know, who you want to, to gift one to. Mm. And Hannah still had every single one of the books that had been given to her, still shrink-wrapped, still untouched, because she didn't have any close family or anybody immediately around her to give them to and that kind of made me quite sad mm. to think that that they were all there that she'd ne- she'd never sort of distributed them but another part of me was like well i think that was her i could i could kind of see why that would have happened but you know i just saw this pile of books sitting there that had never seen the light of day that was the story of her life. And in a way, it kind of felt... That felt, felt more final. Mm. Felt like, that, like the end of an era. It fit with the, the sort of idea of lone voice. When she was discovered, you know, she was in isolation, looking after herself, sort of living by herself and for herself. And I think, I know, you know, the word hermit, I think we throw it around a bit and we just mean someone who doesn't like going out on a Friday night. But... You know, the romance of a true hermit and someone who wants to to be alone and sort of live in wisdom. Um, I'm reading quite a lot of Pima Chodron at the moment, the, um, the Buddhist nun, and that comes up a lot. I mean, she's also very good at saying lots of people think they want to live in splendid isolation and be very noble <laughs> yeah. and very spiritual. Actually, the way to live is to, you know, be like, we ha- oh, we have to live with other people and it's really, really hard. And that's where the challenges come in and that's, you know, what we have to, to learn and deal with. Turning it on its head. I read that I have another book on my shelf that's called Isolation Shepherd. That was a book. Oh! Oh! <laughs> Isolation Shepherd. And that was a book about uh, a man farming, um, shepherding in the highlands. I have all these books. It's actually, <clears throat> this has been really good for me because it's reminded me. I'll have to go back and start going through my bookshelves because it's reminded me of all the things that I've got sat there. So yeah, yeah, we've got a bit of a theme going, haven't we? 
Definitely. I mean, please do. I mean, heaven forfend. I think, you know, you and your books have got, you know, many long and glorious years to come. But, you know, this, what a collection. I mean, I, to be honest, I have no, um, I cannot keep a houseplant alive, but I'm like, I, I want to learn about agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it doesn't mean I've got green fingers. It, oh, absolutely. So honestly, doesn't. But it's just, you know, I know books have a value, but what is that value? I mean, some of the books, I don't know, some of my books would be like worthless. Quite a lot of them, the majority of them. Some of them maybe have a value sort of a monetary value because they're probably rare or collector's pieces mm. but every one of them is priceless yeah in its own way you know i remember my book of sweat my, my men of swaledale book i've had such difficulty finding a copy and i got it and i loved it so much i don't know what happened to it somehow some pages dropped out of it and i was mortified and i don't think i ever found them again anyway but you know, you have to strike that balance, don't you? Books are there to be read, right? They're there to be enjoyed. Yeah, sometimes you balance a coffee cup on them. I do I do lend people books. I say, here, I've got one out on loan. No, I've got two out on loan. One of them has been out on loan probably for about 15 years. So I think I'm going to have to write that out. I haven't forgotten. What is it? Um, I think it's, I think it's something like a history of beekeeping. I can picture wow. the plates in it. And it was someone who was really into bees, he, and he was called Crusher. And Crusher, <laughs> yeah, Crusher. Anyway, Crusher wasn't your average kind of reader sort of chat, but I did kind of say, oh, I've got, because I always do that. It's like a great interest. Oh, yeah, you're into that. I've got a book on this. And then I realized my fatal mistake. And I remember putting a book plate in the front of it, slapping it in with my name on and saying, here, but I've never seen it again. But then again, I've never seen Crusher again, so... So maybe okay. him. So so whether I'll ever get that one back. And the other one that's out on out on loan with my friend Derek is um a dictionary of dialectual words used in Swaledale. So that was limited to only fifty copies and it was written a couple of hundred years ago. And I know he'll look after it probably better better than I do, so I'm fine with that. Definitely better than Crusher by the sounds of things. <laughs> like listeners, if you know a Crusher, Crusher, if you're listening, please can we reunite Amanda with a B book? <laughs> can you remember any words that are unique to Swaledale? Any amount of words. I mean we could have Ken Speckled. Ken Speckled. That means your children are they Ken Speckled? That means do they look the same? So no, they're not so Ken's Beckled. I've got Sydney who's ginger. I've got Raven who's ginger and pale. I've got um, Edith who's dark eyes, dark hair and olivey skin. So Ken's Beckled, that's one word. It's kind of like the way that you speak. It's kind of like, you know, like, where you gone? Have you got your beard? You talk about, you talk about your sheep. You talk about, you know, people will say, what are you talking about? Tub hogs, gimmer hogs. You're talking about shearings. You're talking about hogs. You're talking about, you're talking about twinters. If someone said, someone said, bye, that's a snodden. Snod? What does snod mean? Snod actually means tight-coated. There is so much language that is evolved around sheep. So a snod sheep is one with a really tight fleece. You say it's wearing its jacket and its overcoat because it's got a really tight inner fleece that keeps the weather at bay. All kinds of words. I love that, that there is a whole language specific to the sheep. You know, all right, smittle. If I say to you smittle, what do I mean? Smittle. You can, you can hear me work. You see, the things, all these words 
Smittle, fertile. Oh, really? You see, I think that smittle, I'm guessing, it sounds like you fancy someone so much you're drooling, like smitten in spittle. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of it, smitten. So, it, so we put smit marks on the sheep. And a smit mark is basically the mark when it is in lamb. So we know basically who the father is. So the smit mark goes on and it's because he's been smittled, because he's been fertile. So you can kind of see sort of how sort of language evolves and how words evolve and how as time goes on, that can be that can be rather diluted. So being able to get hold of a copy, original mm-hmm. form of that dictionary, it was like, honestly, I was so excited. I was so excited. Again, Derek, if you're listening, don't forget <laughs> look, look that it's not it. yours. Look after it. He will. But it's it's practical poetry, isn't it? These sort of amazing, beautiful, unique words, but they're invented for a specific and important purpose. The people in Ardale and in Swaledale, they were very lyrical. They wrote so many of their stories and made them into poetry and poems. And to be able to read it was kind of like the goal for me to be able to read it and understand it without without having to look at the footnotes <laughs> was was so important it's things that i recognize it's places that i recognize i can read the poems to the children and they will ask me to read it again because they can relate to it. Mm. So it's kind of like it's kind of like t- I, honestly, it's, it's lazy parenting. I'm putting, so <laughs> I'm squashing something. I'm like, hey, we're doing poetry today, mm. but you know what? We're also doing a bit of history. And you know what? We're also doing English. Hey, I've kind of like squashed it all into one, and you've got it all. There you go. <laughs> oh, but that is why I love books so much because they are everything, and they're you know so specific and such perfect detailed pieces of you know something that seems tiny but that tiny thing is enormous it's you know the universe is contained within it is enormous when i got when i managed to get a hold of a book that had um that had um a, a slip of paper and an account of a funeral at the top end of, of the dale just literally right where we live uh, down at Birtle, i thought well what's what's going on here and i discovered that hundred years ago there was um there was a funeral held for a horse and it was a work horse it was a farm horse and it was a horse that that everybody in the locality they just they knew it they loved it it was as much of a character and as part of the sort of place uh, as anybody or anything else so when it died they decided that they would hold a proper full bone funeral they would have a funeral tea they would they would go great guns and they of course did a um a eulogy and made up a poem about the whole thing too and when i read it to the kids it was kind of like you know what this is actually a history lesson because mm. it's a poem but it's also about those connections that even a way back then they held that horse in such high esteem that they would hold a whole funeral write a eulogy and a poem and we I, still know that when you said funeral i never would have guessed that's where it's going but that's really beautiful that's really moving i'm a big jilly cooper fan 
And that's the sort of thing that happens in a lot of Jilly Cooper novels. There's a lot of things that happen in Jilly Cooper novels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, you know how sometimes you just, you, I can still see the cover. You know, you get to see there are certain, I suppose, classic covers, aren't there? And everybody mm. can see the Riders cover, can't they? Yeah. Everybody can see the Jodpers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fantastic. The book that got me into the most trouble was one by Judy Bloom. I think it was... <gasps> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yes, I got in a huge trouble for that one because it definitely, it definitely, apparently was unsuitable, and and that actually, that actually got thrown on the fire. So <gasps> Who threw it on the fire? Yeah, yes, I didn't throw it on the fire, but my mum did. Yeah, that's exactly. outrageous. Was it forever? Yes, she found it. She found it. So it's kind of like the the equivalent of sort. Of, well, I don't know. Are there still books that are a no-no or have we become more liberated on that one? I don't know. I think I'd be quite happy. I'd be quite happy to find Judy Blooms forever. I'd prefer that to the internet, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. Well, what's so lovely about Forever is it's one of the first books I read where it's not like in, say, Thomas Hardy, where it's like, oh, a woman has sinned, she'll, she'll be drowned in the well. You know, she, they have sex, it's fine. And sorry for the spoiler, everyone. Stop listening <laughs> if you don't want the spoilers. But they break up and that's fine too. And they get on with their lives. And it's, you know, it's human normal. and shame-free and normal. And again, it's such a... I think it partners very, very well with um, with your goddess book. It's all part of the same emotional ecosystem. Well, do you know what? It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you, Daisy, because you've made me think about about what I have got on my bookshelves and what I've read and what has influenced me, um, what has changed me, changed, sort of changed my life, but also it's given me some ideas as well. Essays could be the way forward. Brilliant. Well, I really, really hope that they are. Um, and again, congratulations on uh, the paperback publication and your many books. And I'm, um, I can't wait to cook. <laughs> I'm going to be doing lots of, um, lots of spilling. Oh, well, thank you so much, Daisy. Huge thanks to Amanda. Celebrating the Seasons is out now in paperback, and if ever a book was made for an autumn afternoon, it's this one. It had me in five words. Rhubarb and custard crumble cake. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends. Thank you so much to everyone who has left a five-star review. If you haven't done it yet, we would really appreciate that because it helps other people to discover the podcast and their new favourite books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Amanda at acast.com forward slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be back soon with more book chat, but for now, I leave you with this from Toni Morrison. I have an ideal writing routine that I've never experienced, which is to have, say, nine uninterrupted days where I wouldn't have to leave the house or take phone calls. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 